0: We are starting a new series, uh, we've, we've been going through Mark at the minute for quite a while and we're going to come back to Mark at the end of, um, well in January and we're going to start our Christmas series and this is five, we've got five Sundays after today till Christmas, can you believe that? There's only five Sundays and uh, there are 37 days left till Christmas. Lots of you don't want to hear this, do you? 37 days away and... Um, we called it Unwrapping Christmas and really what we're trying to do is look at some key texts in the Bible that are often Christmas texts um, and we want to look at really the significance of these texts and help us to understand what is so significant, why are these te- texts the ones that we turn to as we look at Christmas Day and, um, and why should we get so excited about it? OK, Christmas is an exciting season, isn't it? But actually, lots of us get excited for not, I wouldn't say the wrong reasons, but yes, the wrong reason. If that makes sense. Other reasons. Other reasons. And, um, do you know, it's so important that we understand what is all this excitement about. Why should we be rejoicing at this time? Why is this the day in history that is so crucial to understanding our story and God's story. I want to start this morning by looking at um, a couple of verses that are written 700 years before Jesus' birth. And it's from a prophet called Isaiah. I want to ask a few questions first, though, about Christmas, because I know you can hear Matt. Matt's the excitable child over Christmas. (laughs) I'm sure lots of you are. My sister is as well. She just absolutely loves it. But I wanted to start by asking, it's really interesting to find out how people respond to Christmas. Who has finished doing all their Christmas shopping? Becky, you are the only one. Well done. Is that because it's an exciting thing to do, or is that just organisation? Both. Who's going to wait till this Friday, Black Friday, to do all of their Christmas shopping on? No. No. No one knows it is Black Friday. Here's the next question. Who has started putting up their Christmas decorations at home? We've is that, got is some that up from last year? Does that count? still got some up from last year. Is that because Matt just loves Christmas all year rounds? Yeah. No one started putting any up? Or you don't want to admit it? Yes, Leanne. Sarah, what have you got up? Okay. <laughs> Leanne, what have you gone for? You've got the tree. Would you do the lights? Yeah, yeah. Only on, the tree. Only on the tree. Okay. Do you know, we love Christmas. Our kids love Christmas. And we normally, the first, the first day of December, if it's a Saturday, um, we would be going out, getting the tree, um, putting our lights up. And we've actually started getting to the point where we're putting lights outside our house. What? And you know, light. I oh, know, it's exciting. Light plays a really significant part of Christmas, doesn't it? And um, I wanted to show you a few pictures of some houses of people who just get really excited over Christmas. I've got no idea what their electricity bill is going to be, but that is is off the scale. Anybody competing with that? No? There's another one there, Guy. Again... It's just absolutely crazy. People are just getting so excited about Christmas, putting the lights out. But um, as we look at this passage today, from Isaiah, we're going to be looking at it. I wanted to show you. start by showing you this next one. It's a prism of light. And as this light shines through the prism, you get all of these other colours that come off it. And if I was going to describe this passage, it feels a little bit like this picture. Okay? Isaiah starts this prophecy with this light that's going to come. And as this light comes, we receive lots of things on the back of it, and this light that comes into the world through Jesus Christ, that's who this light is, I hope you understand that, it comes, and it's going to bring, as I was going to talk about, not just the life and the victory that this light brings, but a new peace, a new joy, and a new king into the world. And so that's just a helpful picture as we start to unpack this passage, what Might it look like this passage? What is Isaiah trying to tell us? It's also really important to understand the context of what's going on here. I said it's 700 years before the birth of Jesus, this prophecy that was bought. The context is really important to understand what's going on for the kingdom of Israel at this point in time. So just to give you a little bit of a glimpse, Israel has now split into two kingdoms. You've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's in a dark place, Okay. It's not easy. It's being led at the minute by King Ahaz. So this is where we are in Isaiah. So just trying to put you into the context. And King Ahaz, he is a king who, to be honest, is failing. He is disobeying God. And he's forming alliances with other nations. Because he thinks that forming alliances with other nations is going to protect him. What you've got at the minute is you've got two kingdoms that are pretty small. And you've got some big world forces. Assyria that are threatening these nations. And they live in fertile land. They live in a place that people just want to trample through. And they want to take it because it's good land. So this is a time for Israel that is quite a scary time. It's a really dark time. Um, and they're even fighting each other, okay, as kingdoms. Um, and so you've got two uh, nations that are made up of Israelites that are fighting one another. And As I said, they're forming alliances with nations that are pagan nations. And they think that this is going to protect them. Even though God said, do not form an alliance with this nation and I will protect you. And King Ahaz has gone, they're too big. I can't see how God is going to protect me at this point. And so what you've got here, essentially, they're so small, they're so threatened... Extinction almost is looming for this nation. And there's a sense here from Israel. There's a sense that they're feeling that God has left them. That's the real crux of it. They're worshipping other gods. They're not listening to God when he is speaking through prophets that are coming and saying, God's saying this. And um, they feel like God's left them. And so what I'm going to do, I want us to try and understand when people turn to this passage in Isaiah, why is this so important? Part of it is understanding where this nation was at. Okay? What was going on historically. But then it's applied to a spiritual reality as well. And we're just going to walk through the passage. And I'm just going to look at it and try and bring some things out from it. Um, and look at what we can expect. Okay? What should be our experience of the coming of the new king, Jesus? So... If you've got your Bibles, it's Isaiah chapter 9, or you can read it off the screen. I'm starting from verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And this is where most people would preach from. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So, the first area I want to look at is this light. Okay, this is where Isaiah starts. So we're going to be looking at um, these top verses here. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Do you know, the same thing's being said here in the two verses. It's exactly the same thing. It's this sense that it's the people in darkness who will see the light. This is great hope for this nation of Israel, Because they are in absolute darkness. We've just read at the end of chapter 8, the gloom, the darkness that they're in. It's the people who are in great darkness that will see the light. And this is, it just makes total sense. You only see light in darkness. You realise that? That's when you notice light. Now, I have the privilege of working from home. And in the summers, especially this summer where the, the weather was beautiful, there are times when I thought, Do you know what? I fancy soaking up a few rays in the garden whilst working. So there I was, I got my deck chair out. thought, great, I'll get on the laptop. You bring the laptop out, you've got your shorts and your t-shirt on, thinking, this is great, this is the life. Put your laptop on, just can't see the screen. I turn the contrast up, still can't see the screen. I've literally got to sit in the shade to see the screen. And that's the problem. We can't see the light in the light. But I know this week I've been ill. I was awake one night, most of the night. That didn't help my wife, who was sleeping at the time. I thought, man, I can't sleep here at the minute. I've been up most of the night I'll just just put my phone on, just read the news or whatever. So I switched it on. And my wife suddenly went, whoa, what are you doing? Turn that light off. There I was turning the contrast right down. Turn the light off. Highly annoying my wife here. Most of you, I'm sure, will have experienced this at some point. And in the darkness, the light shines brightly, doesn't it? You have to turn that contrast down and still it shines brightly. I think I have to turn over the other side so she couldn't see the lights. And this is really what Isaiah is telling us here. And the obvious example again is stars. When we think about stars in the sky, when you're in the city, we look up at the sky. We don't see a lot of stars, do we? Because there's a lot of light beaming out of the city. I remember going to Egypt last year with the kids. And we were sitting out on the beach side at night. The, the sky was just covered in stars. And they were absolutely amazed. They were like, we just never see this. And it's simply because there's not a huge amount going on in the area that we were in. There wasn't a lot of light coming from the buildings. So suddenly you could see all of the stars that were there. And I was thinking about this again with the light. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have a fireworks party in the daytime, would you? You just can't see it. You'd hear a lot of noise, but you wouldn't be see, seeing a lot. And it's this idea, I think, that Isaiah is wanting us to understand. It's when you're in darkness that you see the light. And Isaiah's is saying it's the same for the people who are in spiritual needs. Okay? It's not just about a physical reality. There's a spiritual reality in this one as well. It's the people in darkness who see this coming King, who see Jesus and are drawn to him. It's those who are broken, those who are battered, those who are suffering, those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed, who need rescue, who recognize the light. They recognize him. And you know, those who seem to have it all, those who don't feel like they need anything or anyone because they're perfectly happy with what they have. They think they have plenty of light. And it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Because they just don't need the light. It's like for them trying to read this screen in bright sunlight. There's no need for it. They just can't see it. I want to ask this morning, are you in gloom, in anguish, in pain? Are you in darkness? Because this is the state that God tells us that we were. We were in total darkness into poverty. And he came. And he came for people just like you and me. And it's actually the people there sitting in light saying, I don't need this. They never see the light because they don't think they need to. And Isaiah is saying, "Is what's, what's going to happen when this light shines, when this light comes? He's saying he's going to shine through the people that are in desperate darkness and gloom and in anguish. And they're the ones that are going to see the glory of God. And so this child that Isaiah is talking about when he's born you can expect that he's going to be the kind of person that will attract all the wrong type of people. All the people that are desperate, are in need, they're going to flock to him. Okay? And all those who people might expect being attracted to the king, those who are successful, their dignitaries, they will have no need of him. They won't recognize him. They can't see the king because they can't see that they have any need for him. That's the first thing Isaiah talks about is this darkness in the light or light in the darkness. Secondly, joy. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing plunder. So Isaiah has already introduced this idea that the king is going to be light in the darkness. But he's going to start to look at some tangible elements to what we can experience with the coming of this king. So just like that prism analogy of the light going through, now we've got this refraction and we've got some tangible things that is going to come with the king. So he exclaims that this king is going to enlarge the nation. There's going to be mass expansion of his nation. And he uses some pictures here that are actually quite hard for us to understand. And these are pictures of things that would have brought immense joy. Celebration and rejoicing to the nation at this time. And we can see that one of these pictures is the harvest. And the other one is dividing plunder after battle. Um, Obviously for us in our culture, I can't imagine many of us have in the last year or so, divided plunder after a battle, apart from maybe after Pete's games. And the harvest, I think, in our culture, in our country, not many of us are farmers or in agriculture. Um, and so trying to understand what is this joy, this celebration, this happiness that comes with these events is really difficult to understand. It's really important just thinking about what it would have been like for these guys, okay? Okay. If you live in their world, you would spend your months plowing and irrigating, waiting, praying for the rain, and hoping that your labor will bear fruit. Because if it doesn't, your family is likely to die. You actually need that food to survive for the next year. This is actually a matter of life and death, the harvest coming. If your crops are ruined, you are putting your family at dire risk. And so when we try to understand the celebration and the rejoicing that happens in harvest, when you realize all that hard work, that whole year of digging, of irrigating, of making sure that those crops are going to survive and yield. We've got food to eat. My family has food to eat for the next year. We've got crops that we can sell. We've got the things that we need to survive for this year. And so there's a sense here of rejoicing, but also relief. Okay? Relief that this season's worked. And then a very similar analogy he uses is this battle. This divide and plunder in battle. You think about a battle. I know fighting with my kids for 10 minutes... I'm absolutely dead by the end of it. I'm jumping on my shoulders and on my back, and it's like, man, I can keep going for about 10 minutes. But actually, on the battlefield, this would have been physically, mentally, emotionally exhausting. You'd have been fighting away on this battlefield for weeks, months, years. And you may have lost close friends. You might have lost family members on this battlefield. So when the victory comes, when suddenly you realise we have conquered, we have defeated this army, you no longer have to fight. That you can put down your sword and you get to divide the spoils of the enemy. You get to divide the land that you conquered. And you get to go home to see family. This would have been cause for much celebration. I can just imagine. It's just, just the hug in, the relief, the joy that we've conquered. And so these two analogies are what he's using because in their day, this would have been things that automatically they would have known this was a massive celebration. This was cause for such joy. And This is what's going to happen, Isaiah is saying, when this child is born, when the light breaks in. This is the sort of joy that you should expect to feel. The sort of relief that you should expect to feel. I was trying to think, what's the equivalent in our culture? I really struggle to understand what what would be the equivalent in our culture. And I came with a bit of a lame one, but I'll I'll bring it anyway. And it's, it's football, surprisingly or not. Because to be honest, in our culture, in, in, in Britain, we're reserved, aren't we? And so the thought of getting really excited and overwhelmed at victory, it only happens in, in one area, I think, in that sports. And uh, I was thinking, you know, actually, you've got fans who travel to every home and away game. Yeah. And they're standing there in the freezing cold when it's raining and snowing. They're seeing the injuries happen through the season thinking, oh, no. Is this the end? We've just lost this person and this person. And it's this period of time that you are hoping against hope that your team, if you're Everton, you're just hoping you stay up. If you're Liverpool, you're hoping this is it, this is the season. And there's this sense of that final match comes and you'll end up on top. And you, you've seen it in the cities, haven't you? In Man City. Last season. the Celebrations. As they travelled through the city on that open-top bus and the crowds gathered and they were celebrating and rejoicing because Man City won the Premier League. And it was a hard-fought battle. Well, it wasn't a hard-fought battle for them, was it? They, they ran away with it way too quickly. But that was the only thing I could think of that I thought, do you know what? Similar thing of this celebration, this rejoicing. There's been this hard graft. You've had to stand firm in those difficult times. And then the promise of this new king has come. This light has entered the world and we can expect joy. Absolute joy and rejoicing. So at Christmas time, why is it all about joy? Because this is the new king that Isaiah is prophesying about. The joy he's going to bring. Light also brings peace. Go to this next. So these next verses. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boots used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. This is the image of the slave master's tools or the the, the weapons that have been used by oppressors and they're being smashed. They're being done away with. The oppressor's tactics and tools obliterated. When this child is born, he will break the oppressive regime that we have been under. Verse 5 seems to suggest that there's going to be an almighty bonfire, a bonfire of boots and military clothing. So we're essentially gathering all of this um, weapons and clothing used in battle. And we're just going to pour petrol and paraffin on it and we're going to set a light to it. Essentially, because these items are no longer going to be needed. There will not be any needs. This isn't about, oh, hold on. What if the enemy attacks later? Surely we need to keep these things stored up in our warehouses. No. It's done. Once and for all, there will be a peace that will come that will be definite and will give us the total confidence to burn it all. No longer will we have to fight the battle because that battle has been fought and won. And he says here, when it happens, it will be like the day of Midian. And the mention of Midian would have evoked a story in the heads of Israelites. And that is the story, many of you will know this, the story of Gideon attacking the Midianites. And Gideon was this fairly timid guy who was found in a wine press and was hiding from his enemies at the time. He was no warrior in there. But God called him out and told him he was a warrior. And he was raised up as a warrior for Israel. God told him to gather an army to defeat the Midianite army. That was tens of thousands of people. And so he gathered, and he gathered 32,000 men. And God said, no, 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 that's too many. I want you to get rid of some. In fact, I only want you to keep 10%. uh, Sorry, not 10%, 1% of that army. Going from 32,000 to 300 men. Every 99 of those 100 men send home. Because God wanted to show his power. He wanted people to have no doubt that this was a work of him. And not only did he say, I only want you to fight with 300 men against tens of thousands of men. But he said, oh, by the way, I don't want you to take swords into this battle or shields into this battle I want you to fight this battle by forming a ring and you're to take with you a jar and a light and a trumpet and I want you to smash your lights, blow your trumpets and shout out loud a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. I don't know about you, I would have been like what? This is an incredibly dangerous situation that he's going into. And this would have required immense faith. You're walking into a camp with tens of thousands of men who are equipped with armor, with swords. And God wants you to walk in there with a tiny group of people with trumpets and lights and jaws. But do you know what? Amazing man, he does it. And his 300 men do it. He obeys and he trusts. And you know what happens? The Midianites are thrown into total confusion. They do it at night and the army ends up attacking itself and they kill one another. Phenomenal. And God, through Isaiah, is saying that this story is what is going to happen. It's what it's going to be like when this child is born, when the light breaks into the world. Because you know, you have a world filled with war and turbulence, and God will act, and the darkness will destroy itself. He's going to confuse and frustrate and conquer. And the enemy thought he was defeating God by crucifying Jesus, he was actually defeating himself. Do you see that? The enemy thought he was winning. And it was God's plan for his own defeat. And, do you know, the reality is, we're going to be standing there. This is the idea. Just as, the, just as Gideon's army was standing there doing absolutely nothing to claim victory, we're not going to be able to take credit for this victory, just as Gideon's army couldn't take any credit for their victory. Could you imagine being one of the guys in Gideon's army Seeing that happen and go, man, did you hear how loud I blew my trumpet? It's because I shouted so loud. Totally confused them. Absolute crazy to try and claim any credit for that victory. It was all God. It was all his doing without question. And Isaiah saying, Jesus will defeat the darkness and peace will reign. The battle will be over and we're going to be able to put down our weapons because of the peace that he brings. Finally, last section, a new king. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. If you weren't amazed at the prophecy so far, this part of the prophecy is unbelievable. It's 700 years before Jesus' birth. And to be honest, I'm not even sure Isaiah had any idea what he was talking about. How we could have understood this concept of God incarnate. And even in the first two lines, we recognize the divinity of the child. He says in verse two, to us a son is given. And we know for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his one and only son. This isn't just about a son that's been born. This is about a son who has been there forever and ever. And the names that he gives to this son, this king to be, leaves no other option on the table than this being about Jesus Christ. Each of these names that he uses has a real sense of the divinity and the humanity combined that we find in the God-man, Jesus And he goes on to describe how he will be like a ruler that will rule unlike any other king. One that Israel has seen, two that the world has ever seen or will see. So, when he calls this child, the promised child, the wonderful counsellor, he's talking about kings in those days, they had counsel. They had people to help them with decisions and direction, and guidance. But this king will be the wonderful counselor. We will be able to bring our problems to him. He will be able to guide us with a perfect wisdom and knowledge. In fact, he's going to go further. He actually will take up our problems. He will carry them with us. In our anguish, he's going to be the comforter, the wonderful counsellor. Mighty God. When mighty was used in Old Testament times, it was used talking about major exploits that some of these guys like Moses and Joshua and King David did. These mighty things that they did. And so what we're talking about is a king who is going to do mighty heroic acts. But this king is separated from all other mighty acts because he is God. God himself. And we know that Jesus Christ carried out the most heroic act in history. Dying for us. Dying for those who were his enemies. Those who rejected him. Those who have been living for self. Everlasting Father. This child who's being born will not come into existence when he's born. He's everlasting, everlasting Father. There's no ending, no beginning. He's the Alpha, the Omega. I just wonder could Isaiah say any more plainly that this child is God incarnate? God becomes a child. And this idea of the father is speaking of this compassion, this loving care, this protection, this guidance, this support, this encouragement that fatherhood brings forever. That's the father we're we're talking about. He is the prince of peace. His kingdom will be a kingdom of peace. It's not going to be a kingdom in constant flux or major volatility where the people of the kingdom don't know whether it's going to be here today or gone tomorrow. This is where the Israelites are currently at, remember? They don't know whether they're going to get crushed by an army coming in. This kingdom that he is establishing is a kingdom of peace. And this peace will reign. Why? Because he has defeated The ultimate enemy. Satan. He's defeated death and sin. Once and for all. And you know, this king is the guarantee. That this joy and this peace that has come. Isn't just a flash in the pan. Says of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. This peace and joy and Righteousness and justice that Isaiah speaks about is going to be an everlasting kingdom ruled by this King Jesus. So it means the turmoil, the anguish, the suffering, the isolation, the uncertainty that the Israelites were facing in this situation would have led them to a great anticipation of the coming King. A longing for this King to come and to rescue them. And so, here at Christmas, as we're approaching it, we too need to be reminded of the anticipation of this long-awaited ruler that these guys had to face, who would rule and reign so differently to any other king before him. This ruler, King Jesus, is why we don't live in fear and turmoil and anguish and pain, because he's brought a new kingdom, a new era to rule that's defeated the enemy of death and destruction so that we get to live in a kingdom with a future hope, a future hope of eternity where Revelation 21.4 says, there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. This is the kingdom that this new king is bringing with him. Do you know, light plays this hugely significant role at Christmas as we as we decorate our houses, as our, we decorate our trees, as we recognize that light shines in the darkness and gloom of light. And I think light also plays a significant role in the Christmas story. As we see the, the wise men, don't we? follow the star from the east. They follow this light that guides them to the very place that the light of the world is born. And by the way, Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 60 that Gentile kings will travel to see the light, the king. He also prophesies that they will bring with them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Isaiah was just a phenomenal prophet. The shepherds, we know, are in darkness in this field when an angel appears to them in glorious light. In the darkness, light. And tells them of the news of this new king who has been born. And even Simeon, the old man of the temple, was presented with Jesus And he knew that God had promised him that he would meet the Messiah, the promised king. And when he met Jesus, he said this, he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your words. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. To end by saying isaiah's prophecy here is phenomenal it should make us want to celebrate and rejoice at the light of the world who has come into the darkness into our darkness and brought us a new joy a new peace and a new promise of a king whose kingdom will reign forever and ever